It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archived shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And uh, so, uh, yes, indeed, everyone, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you happen to be listening to this show, we are here on an April Saturday and uh, so glad to be back on the radio after a little sabbatical. It's been um, quite a busy time this last month of uh, March with doing presentations in uh, South Carolina and the Q Center for uh, for Missing Persons Annual Conference and a multitude of other things. So um, I'm so uh, glad to sort of be back in the saddle and to be featuring a brand-new guest. And it's a, it's a cutting edge, it's a difficult topic, but it's a very worthy topic for our show because although it doesn't deal with crime per se, it, it, it is tragedy, and we're, and we're speaking about the aftermath and how we deal with uh, something that's very important. And it, it sort of completes a trilogy. And I want to thank Felix Nader for um, referring me to our current guest because it has to do with something that uh, also takes place in the workplace, and that is his area of expertise. Um, so before I introduce her formally, I want to say good morning, Delilah. Glad to have you back with me. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine, and it's good to be back on uh, another Saturday with another extremely important topic and an extremely um, important guest. Yes, absolutely. Um, Our guest actually hails from my home state of Connecticut, originally from Glastonbury, and and, um, now she's she's out in snow country in Denver, and I, I hear it's a very nice day there. Um, and uh, so without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas, who is a psychologist and a mental health advocate. Um, and the area of expertise, or area of expertise says, if that is the correct term, um, has to do with mental health and uh, particularly suicide prevention, because as she will tell you, her brother Spencer, um, with whom she was very close, tragically uh, took his life um, via suicide. And we have done a couple of other shows, but this show will incorporate, I think, a lot of um, information that people may not know, and it's very important. So, Sally, want to say thank you for joining uh, Delilah and I in Shattered Lives. Welcome to our welcome to our family of uh, of, of shows here, and it's a pleasure to have you today. Well, good morning, Delilah and Donna. It is an honor to be on this show with you this morning, and I'm so, so grateful that you're highlighting this important topic that touches so many lives. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, this, this topic, you know, is a, 
people typically walk on eggshells and it's something, oh, well, you know, we don't want to hear about it and it, it really doesn't happen too much, but it it really does and it, it happens in, in context in, in which we we may not may not know about and there 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 are causes and contributing factors and that's that's what we want to get into. So before we talk about the nuts and bolts of the um of the of the program that you sponsor and and the many accolades that you have won as a result of dedicating your psychology practice to suicide prevention, why don't you tell tell us a little bit about um about your your background and then maybe your personal story with regard to Carson. Sure, I'm I'm very happy to do that. I just want to comment on the fact that um, the more the longer that I'm in this work, the more I'm absolutely convinced that there is no family that is spared of walking with e- either themselves or someone in their family through a dark night of the soul. Whether you know it's their kids, their parents, their siblings. Um, there's no family that's not touched by incredible, intense mental health challenges or suicidal behavior or thoughts or death. Um, so this is the secret that we all share, um, and everybody you know, has these secrets. And if we can connect to one another, um, support one another, and learn from one another, we'll be in a much better place. Um, so my family's no exception. Um, my brother, uh, as we were talking about, born on uh, – Christmas Eve, like Donna, um, and he was my uh, my first my first memory. He's two and a half years younger than me, and I was told he was my Christmas gift. Uh, so it, it was really an important duty that I took very seriously, and um, we were incredibly close growing up. And by all external accounts, my brother had an amazing, cherished, gifted, celebrated kind of life. He was dashingly handsome and athletic and uh he we called him the pied piper because he was so charismatic and funny uh people would follow him everywhere and uh uh but he had some some demons that he kept secret and that was that he was living with bipolar condition he was um probably showing signs of it throughout his life uh was always kind of a risk taker reckless kind of kid with boundless energy but a lot of boys are so sometimes it's hard to uh, distinguish Um, but in in college he made a bunch of uh, pretty bad decisions that got him kicked out for a year and so my father was really concerned and brought him to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist gave him this diagnosis and my brother you know this was the late 80s nobody was really talking about this and he's like I don't know what this is but I don't have it and I'm fine and he went out to uh, show everybody that he was in control and on top of his situation, and he just knocked it out of the park. Um, he went on to finish school and got a very prestigious job in the insurance industry um, and then left that to create a, his own entrepreneurship endeavor um, in, in insurance and just was, had a you know, beautiful wife, beautiful family, tons of friends. Um, but throughout this whole piece, he would periodically struggle with depression and anxiety. And at this time, I was going to graduate school at the University of Denver, so I was learning uh, each week, you know, new things about medication and, and treatment and coping and so forth. And so uh, I was trying to support him um, and, and help him along the way. And for the most part, he did an exceptional job of managing this. Um, until the the summer of 2004, when, for reasons we don't fully understand, he had his first full-blown episode of mania that totally derailed his life. It disrupted his family, his work. Um, he became critically ill, and um, it was just devastating to see this unfold, and we all felt so helpless of what to do to intervene, because um, unfortunately one of the bad things about bipolar condition is that People in the throes of mania often don't have insight into the fact that what they're doing is really detrimental to their well-being. Um, and so the, it was like watching a train wreck. And the train finally crashed in the fall of uh, 2004 when his accountant told him he was broke and he couldn't get any more money. And uh, he came back to the family. We had been estranged for a couple of months and uh, I, I, honestly, in hindsight, I think he came back to say goodbye. Um, but he was uh, in the worst depression we had ever seen. He, was, he had lost a ton of weight. He hadn't slept for many, many nights. And um, he was so agitated and despondent and filled with self-loathing. Um, and so we just surrounded him with support and love and resources. 
Um, but I think at that point um, he had lost hope. One of the last things that I did with him before he died was uh, sat with him and we chatted about this book called The Unquiet Mind. The Unquiet Mind. It's a mm-hmm. memoir written. Yeah, a memoir written by um, Kay Redfield Jameson, who's a professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University. And she writes about her own experiences with bipolar condition and most importantly about her recovery. And so I said to him, you know, look, Carson, here's this other incredibly accomplished person, incredibly public person, just like you, who has gone through something similar. And she has, you know, found found pathways to, to hope and healing. And uh, he turned to me and he said, but Sally, it's madness. And four days later, he died of suicide. Wow. So I'm, I'm pretty sure he would have persevered to find other things to help him overcome his unbearable psychological pain. But I believe that my brother lost hope that not he couldn't get well again, but that he couldn't get his life back again. You know, that his business partners wouldn't look at him funny and that, you know, his his friends and associates wouldn't, you know, find him the same kind of person that he was before. Uh, and so that's really what fuels the the passion that I have around this issue to prevent what happened from Carson from happening to other people uh, and to make sure that no one dies of isolation and despair. Uh, it's just an incredible, um, you know, de-escalation of your life. It sounds like when when someone is in in that manic state, you know, intensely. Does is that the point where therapy and medication and all kinds of things, if they're given like immediately, that will that will make a, a difference? I mean, what would have made a difference at at that point? You know, those few days before he took his life, if um, I mean, would there have been something? So there are many, many pathways to recovery, and there's not one thing that will work for all people. Um, and there's also many pathways into suicidal despair. Mental health conditions contribute quite a bit, depression, bipolar condition, trauma, and so forth. But um, also overwhelming life challenges also contribute to suicidal despair. The, the one at the top of the list is when the primary relationship, so partners dissolve their partnership, uh, husbands and wives or other type of uh, really committed relationships. And um, so there's, there's a number of things that can be pre- precipitating events to suicidal despair. Um, I think the thing that was missing for Carson, and this is just his situation, um, other people will have other things that will help them through, um, was my brother didn't have any peers at that time. Again, this is 2004. There were very few men who were business executives who were out talking about mental health and talking about their experiences with depression or other types of mental health conditions. And so he felt incredibly alone in this, in this life challenge. He didn't have uh, any role models or any roadmaps of how you do this when you're trying to run a company or how you do this when you're kind of at the top of your game and you don't want to disclose this, this potential thing you're going to be judged about. Um, and so that's been one of the areas of emphasis in, in, in kind of my advocacy is that we really need to not be ashamed of this. So many people go through it, and the stories of the hope and recovery are some of the most courageous, most inspiring, and they actually endear trust rather than judgment more often than not. So that's the piece that was missing. It wasn't a pill. It wasn't a a form of treatment. He needed hope from other people who had been there, other people who had gone through it. Um, That's what I think kept kept him. Yeah, uh, specifically other men. It's a macho thing, isn't it? Like, I'm a man. I'm supposed to be strong. I'm supposed to be able to survive whatever it is. Yes. I mean, this isn't true for all men, but so many men um, are conditioned Mm -hmm. from birth to be self-reliant, to be strong, to be the person that people lean upon, um, not the person who's needy, to, to be the provider um, and to never show any kind of weakness, brokenness, illness, sickness, whatever. Um, and, and really that does cultivate a lot of resilience in men and a lot of courage in men. But when men are facing overwhelming life challenges like divorce, financial hardship, or the onset of addiction or mental health challenges, 
they try to white knuckle it and go it alone, and that's when they get in trouble because some of those things are so overwhelming, it's almost impossible to go it alone, and they and they they find themselves in catastrophic situations. And is that as opposed to a female's response or how a female would respond? So again, women tend to be you know a bell-shaped curve, if you will, have responses that are varied, but more often than not, women have um, in in adult years have stronger social connections, and, and I, I call them true social connections. And by my definition of true social connections is where we feel comfortable and we have a high level of trust with people where we can be vulnerable and we can share what's really going on for us and the things that we're scared about and the things that we're worried about or sad about or confused about. Um, and we do this often and willingly because the benefit of those connections are so powerful in our lives. Um, so that mm-hmm. when we face these overwhelming life challenges, we've got a safety net that's going to catch us. And, you know, people will come out of the woodwork to support us and, you know, help us with other life, you know, you know life uh, responsibilities and so forth. Men, because of the conditioning around being that lone wolf, um, have less of that. And they actually lose more and more social connectivity over the course of their life. So while they may have a bunch of friends in high school or fraternity brothers or, um, you know, sports associates, or whatever when they were young as they get older they lose a lot of that so they get more and more isolated yeah I I see the importance of connection and you know with me being a, a single professional without children it's it's very important to me to have those connections too because you you know you you can slip into the abyss without having that support it's so important you know, it really, really is. How do we um, – I just wondered, too, Sally, in terms of the field of psychology, are you one of the few that specialize in in in, in being an expert in suicide prevention? And, and we will get into demand therapy and whatnot in a little bit. But are, are, you, are you kind of a lone wolf in this or the, or the pioneer, so to speak? Oh, definitely not. No, there's a, a whole professional association. Um, there's several, actually, that, uh, but the primary one for people uh, in my field is the American Association of Suicidology. And in fact, we have our national conference next week in, or the week after next in Phoenix. So, um, and we get together oh. and, and share best practices. And it's primarily made up of mental health service providers, so psychologists, so social workers, psychiatrists, et cetera, um, but mm-hmm. also advocates from all kinds of different backgrounds and many people with lived experience or lived expertise, as we like to call it, lost survivors and attempt survivors. So it's a really cool place to uh, blend in these uh, different forms of expertise, whether it's research, clinical, or lived expertise. Um, very cool place. Um, so now there's, there's, there's an army. Uh, we're small but mighty, and we're always to enroll other voices, especially non-mental health voices, because you, you all carry the message much farther um, so we've been partnering with construction and first responders and all kinds of all kinds of new and needed voices that lift up the this issue into new areas, especially where it's super needed. Um, I am a psychologist, and I did start my career doing uh, counseling and therapy and so forth in higher education and also with first responders. And while I loved working with people and hearing their stories, I think my skill sets and passions were better suited to social and cultural change, um, really changing the system um, and the way that we talk and view these things so that fewer people find themselves in this life-threatening despair. Um, So now I'm also focused on helping those in my profession, and by that I mean all mental health service providers, Uh, be better prepared in working with and have a better mindset about working with people who are suicidal. Uh, Most people unfortunately don't realize that um, mental health professionals by and large are not well prepared. Uh, You think we would be because this is the, the biggest, the biggest liability, the biggest fear that mental health professionals have is that someone in under their care will die of suicide. But by and large, most mental health professionals do not know the best practices in suicide risk assessment, management, and recovery. So this is a, a new area of focus of mine um, to help uh, help those who are helping those people who are suicidal know what to do when people are coming into their offices in this state and to not be afraid but to be excited to, to provide them with life-saving care. Wow. It, 
it is. It's such an important mission, and I'm wondering. Are, are, I know that through the association that you know Felix from, I guess, like it sounds like you are you are targeting certain professions like construction and all of those where you know the middle, maybe perhaps middle aged men would 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 um, be be present, and you want to be able to get that get that message message out. But are you also um, trying to get the message out through social is social media touching this at all? I haven't read much about it. Yeah, so a lot of things that I want to respond to there. First I also want to give a shout out to to Felix and connecting uh me to you um and also uh-huh. for his service <laughs> on the workplace task force of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, a, uh, a task force that I co-lead with a man named Cal Byer out of Washington State. And, and we're really trying he to... He was on my show, conver- too, you know, Sally. Oh, he was? I didn't know that. Yeah, yes, he, he was. He's an energizer bunny, and he is a, an am- amazing connector and leader, and I adore this man. Um, and so uh, the Workplace Task Force really is trying to change the conversations that we're having in our workplaces around mental health and suicide prevention. And um, so we're focusing on a lot of what we call high-risk industries. And these industries are, uh, it's paradoxical to most people. Um, It's actually industries that are mostly made up of some of our most brave, most courageous, most resilient men. Um, So first responders, our our warriors, construction. Uh, Again, it's because... um, Number one, they they tend to white knuckle stuff. They tend to just kind of plow through really difficult circumstances and be unafraid uh, of things. And they also have access to um, means and familiarity with means on, on, to die by suicide. So, you know, gun ownership, access to high places. Um, in the case of physicians and healthcare or other type of healthcare providers, they have access to potentially lethal medicines and so forth. And so we're really trying to work with these workplaces, not just to deal with the crisis of people in, you know, acute suicidal situations, but to create cultures of care that actually prevent that level of despair from happening in the first place. Um, The second thing I want to comment on is this idea of social media. And absolutely, a lot of people are involved in various forms of social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, whatever. A lot of people are getting their information there. They're getting connected to issues. Um, And when it comes to things that are stigmatized, like mental health and suicide, um, very often people will go to the Internet first uh, because it's private before they reach out to their primary care doctor or any kind of mental health professional. They're going to try to get some information from the, from, the, from the web. And so social media is absolutely a great place to elevate the conversation around this um, and create uh, opportunities for a positive conversation, a hopeful conversation. And so now I will introduce Man Therapy um, right. because it's totally, totally fits in here. <laughs> um, so, so let me cue it up a little bit, and then uh, Delilah, I'll have you play the little uh, PSA. So early on, after Carson died, and a, a group of us were searching for, you know, what is the bold gap-filling thing that we need to do to prevent what happened to Carson from happening to other people, um, we realized that the biggest demographic that was falling through the cracks were uh, men in the middle years in particular white men in the middle years, and in particular uh, what we call double jeopardy men, which are men with a number of risk factors who are also least likely to reach out and get help on their own. Um, and so we did a bunch of research uh, in those early days, and, and uh, the partnership that was involved in this was uh, um, the Tactus Marketing, which is a full-service advertising agency in Denver, and the Office of Suicide Prevention um, which is comes out of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment and our group. And so we came together and we interviewed a bunch of men who had survived their own suicide attempts and were now thriving. Super important group to be listening to because they are the black box. They can tell you what they need, what they would have needed at that time, how to find people in that despair, where to reach out and so forth. Um, wow. And we did a lot of focus groups with uh, people who surround men at risk and just did really due diligence and try to figure stuff out. And one of the things that they told us was uh, in order to reach them, we would be far more successful if we made a campaign that was funny. 
And we were like, oh, what? You know, hard enough to do suicide prevention, but now we got to make it funny without uh, offending a whole bunch of people. Um, but luckily for us, uh, Cactus Marketing um, has some pretty amazing creative geniuses in there, and they took this on and they nailed it. Um, so what they did is they created a campaign called Man Therapy, and within this campaign is a fake therapist fake, doesn't exist, not real, I want to emphasize that, a fake therapist, a character named Dr. Rich Mahogany, and he's using humor to man up mental health. And um, so the campaign is uh, a media campaign with television PSAs and radio spots and posters and all kinds of print collateral. And the whole purpose of this external, compelling, humorous, outward-facing media is to draw these men, those, these most at-risk men, into the conversation and to get them self-screening for things like depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and anger. And then we can triage them into different types of care, peer care, online care, professional care, crisis care, based on their responses. And we have but, pre-vetted but, but all have of these question. features. Yeah. Go, How go, go. Do- how do if if you're if you're trying to make the humors, how do we get these macho survivalist men to pay attention to this seriously instead of thinking it's Saturday Night Live kind of thing or whatever? Oh, that's a great conversation. So the humor brings them <laughs> in, and then very quickly they realize it's serious. Um, we have testimonial videos on the website of men who have gone through difficult challenges and and come through it. And, and Dr. Mahogany does a really great job of transitioning um, some of the stereotypical ideas of, you know, traditional masculinity um, and underscoring that these aren't working well for men. Um, they actually make them have increase in despair and that what they really need to do is take this seriously. Um, and so if they come up high on the screening tools, he transitions in his tone to something that's very serious about, you know, you really should pay attention to this. Your, you know, your health is at stake here. Um, and it's, it's a brilliant, they did a brilliant job of transitioning the humor into, um, you know, men taking a serious look at this. And we've done, we've had a couple of uh, external evaluation components to it, uh, uh, University of Colorado Public Health took a look at our data analytics and some of our qualitative research. And now we're currently we're in a a randomized control trial with the CDC through the state of Michigan and a project called Healthy uh, Healthy Men Michigan, where we're just looking at the effectiveness of this. And um, we don't have the data yet from the CDC grant, but the data from the earlier external evaluation told us that you know, we are, it's working. So we're bringing in the men that uh, wouldn't usually come. They are spending a ton of time on the website looking at all the different resources. They are filling out the self-screening tool. And their qualitative remarks are very positive. They actually said that the humor um, kind of decreased the barrier for them to access this information. They said so often clinical websites are too dry and they're so right. full, of jar- full of jargon and they just make it feel so inhumane. They said that the humor made this so much more relatable and they could kind of let down their guard. And also they were excited to pass it on to their friends, which never happens with most mental health materials right now. Well, Nobody's that's like, very encouraging. Cool thing. Yeah, yeah. It, so go ahead and play the are PSA they mo- so people okay. get a sense. So let's listen yeah. to that, and then I have another question. Go ahead, Delilah. Sadness, okay. depression. Believe it or not, men feel these things too. That's why there's mantherapy.org, a place where men can deal with life's issues using tools like manly relaxation tapes. I recommend great American football tackles, <laughs> V8 engines, and my personal favorite, Bowling strikes. Mantherapy.org. Therapy the way a man does it. That's amazing. Mm. This yeah. is just a flavor of, of you know, kind of his uh, his wit, uh, and, and it's just compelling. I mean, we had billboards all over the Denver metro area for a period of time, and we were uh, literally getting um, texts and information uh, as people were sitting at the stoplights. I don't recommend that as a safety uh, <laughs> behavior, but people were like, is this real? Like, what's going on here? Um, and, you know, pretty soon they realized that it was real, and it was just a very unique, innovative way of getting important messages out there. What was so your you have to get out your aggression, but in a or, you know, deal with your problem, but in an appropriate way. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. So it's not about anything about diminishing masculinity. It's about uh, defining masculinity as having strength to take care of your health in proactive ways. Oh, yes. That's that's the most important thing. You can't be seen as, yeah. Um, but it is, I'm trying to visualize. So once you get beyond this, self, this self-screening and you go on, you know, to this program, are there like modules that they listen to? Or do you say, okay, this person is rated, you know, on, on a scale of one to ten and eight, and we recommend therapy and medication and this and that or whatever? I mean, is it very, um, I, I'm sounding like it probably is very customized depending on what 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 the screening yields, uh, but yeah. do, do they have to go through a bunch of modules and, and go through the program, or is it individual or group-oriented group or what? So uh, the main part of man therapy is that people take what we call a 20-point head inspection, again, screening for those four things. And also we ask questions about whether or not they're a first responder or a veteran. And then based on those responses, we queue up, uh, it's almost like a Pinterest style, we queue up a bunch of cards that lead them to resources that we've either created or pre-vetted that um, give them a, a roadmap for the next step. So, and they can ask, they can ask us, what they want to see. So if they want to see stories of men similar to them that uh, have made it through, we can serve up a bunch of videos that show other men. Or if they say, you know, we just want some quick tips that I can do today, uh, we can give them a bunch of cards on, on just behavioral things or ways of thinking that can be different. Or if they say, you know what, I really would like some links to different types of therapy, some, some professional therapy. We have online therapy. We have teletherapy, we have a thing called Help Pro where they can put information in about the type of therapist they want to see in person and they'll serve up people locally in their community that they can go see. And if they're in crisis, we link them to specific crisis resources like the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which also has a specific veterans crisis line or, or chat or text or whatever. We also have specific resources for first responders and veterans, and we've been partnering with many different veteran communities and first responder communities to make sure that we're serving up the right stuff. So the VA, um, a number of kind of the um, different first responder groups, fire service, law enforcement, EMS, um, and they've told us, here's what works for us. And so we've put all of those on our site. So we actually don't provide, man therapy does not provide any direct services ourselves. We're not facilitating peer groups or providing any kind of training. Um, we've vetted other groups. But there was no need for us to duplicate that effort. We found the best, and we link them to that. Wow. That's, that's, that's very impressive. Is it available? I mean, is it – I know you don't have all the data, but – Say, you know, this person that is beginning to uh, have depression and show some other symptomatology and then they're, and then at the other end of the spectrum there's the person in real crisis. Uh, a man can enter, enter this, this uh, program, this system at any point along the continuum and, and be successful. You're able to plug them in based upon the screening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ideally, we want to reach men before they hit the point of crisis, because like any other health, health issue, if you're in stage four cancer, for example, it's just a lot harder to, to bring right. you back. So ideally, we want to reach men as they're you know, having those first episodes of distress, or even before that, just as ways to inoculate them, say, you know, we know you might not be in a bad space now, but chances are good that some point later in the future, you will hit a, hit a rough spot. We all do. And so when that happens or when that happens to your buddy, here's, here's a resource that can help you get it through. And now I should also mention it's not just for men experiencing various types of challenges. It's also for the people around men who are experiencing challenges. So the daughters, the wives, the mothers, the, the best friends, the bosses, um, all these people are also very much welcome to come to man therapy. In fact, we have a tab saying, I'm worried about a man in my life. And it'll help that person who wants to support this man um, find guidance on how to best do that. Kind of like Al-Anon kind of thing or something like that? Yeah, again, there's no group. Um, we're just giving no them group. guidelines and tools. Yeah, there's no group. But we give them guidelines and tools on what they could do and say to support the, the man in their life that they're worried about. Wow. Well, longitudinally, what are you what are you looking for in terms of your long term goal on on all of this, Sally? 
Well, we're always trying to innovate and find new ways to reach men. Um, and actually, where I see this heading to next is to really work within some additional industries um, where traditional mental health messaging uh, and services are not really working. And so for me right now, uh, construction is the big one. Construction and extraction in the CDC uh, report that came out last July um, is the second highest industry for suicide rates and the first highest industry for numbers of suicides. And so this includes construction, but also oil and gas and mining. And this is a huge opportunity to integrate these messages and resources into these industries that have been just by suicide and suicidal behavior, and they've not been talking about it at all. And we can weave these, these resources into their health and safety culture um, and really save lives and promote well-being. And so that's really um, one of the areas of the future that I'm, I'm seeing um, that's really uh, giving me a lot of excitement. And is that because, for instance, the gas and oil people way out there in the middle of the ocean, it's, a, it's so isolating? And, I mean, these people yeah. may make, like, tons of money, but money is not the answer. You need human connection, right, or whatever? Yeah, so there was literally a, a, an economics study that came out just a couple of weeks ago, and they are seeing that men in the middle years, especially men with a high school education or less, are having increasing and significantly increasing um, mortality and morbidity that's almost entirely explained by suicide, drug overdose, and the consequences of addiction. And so they've, they've called this group. Everybody else is getting incrementally healthier, but this group of, of especially men in the middle years, they're dying at, at way before they should be. And um, they, they What ages the, are this, you defining on this, Sally, middle years? Um, or, well, so depending on what you're looking at, uh, it could be anything from 25 to 64. This particular study was looking at uh, like 45 to 54 um, the time where we're starting to experience empty nesting, changes in career perhaps, uh, marriages dissolving and so forth. And so they, they labeled this, this phenomenon of increasing death um, as deaths of despair. And alluding to what you were talking about, in these industries of construction, oil and gas and mining, people with uh, you know, a high school education or less than a college education have an opportunity to make a very good lifestyle for themselves and their family. Unfortunately, these, these vocations are also very liable. And so they have work, they don't have work. Uh, the layoffs are brutal and they're often seasonal. Um, and compounding with that, you know, every time the job transitions, they lose their insurance, they lose access to health care, and they have um, a lot of chronic pain issues. Uh, because of the musculoskeletal work that they're doing out in the field. And these these pain issues are often over-prescribed with opiate-based pain medication. Right. Um, so it's just a, it's yeah. just a perfect storm of, Ooh. like you're saying, iso- isolation, uh, job instability, uh, potential addiction, not only with the opiate pain, but the, you know, the, the coping strategy that they have to deal with stress is to go out and have drinks together. And again, that's not a bad thing in moderation. It's, you know, it's been done for generations, but when that's the only coping tool that you have, again, it can very well lead to um, dependency, which hosts a whole bunch of other health and social problems for the person. So we have this perfect storm of risk factors in these industries, but the good news is I have never seen such momentum pick up as we've seen, especially in construction where, uh, professional associations like the Col- uh, Construction Financial Management Association has embraced this as a priority, and they are bringing together all types of industry leaders to say this matters. And while we might be financial managers, CFOs, and accountants of construction, we are going to embrace this because we have the opportunity here to save lives and improve the lives of the people who are working for us. So they have taken this on. They are messaging really important messages about making this a priority in the safety culture within the industry. And because safety culture is such a huge priority within construction, um, it's been a very quick uptick uh, in embracing this thing that most people can't talk about. 
Wow. I'm just I'm just uh, very very impressed with everything that you're you're saying here because yeah, it is it is so imperative. And when you're talking about work, workplace again, you're expanding the definition. We're not it's not just people sitting in a cubicle or a private office. They're out there on the oil fields or in you know, in the middle of the ocean. That's the workplace, right? What Yeah. What what is it about the workplace in all of this that you've been saying? How do we, I mean, are we not like stretching our definition of workplace and people are just missing the point here? Well, I mean, where people go to work varies all over the place. You know, it's not right. most, you know, not everybody is in an office somewhere. We are right. working on the streets. We're working out in the ocean, as you said, you know, people, <laughs> their offices have, have varying boundaries. Um, but we all work, you know, we all have different types of occupations and so forth. And so it's really the new conversation is how do workplaces participate in the overall public health approach to suicide prevention? So it wasn't a huge stretch for us to think, oh, schools need to be part of this, right? We need to make sure that our kids get the the, the right support. And it's not a, a stretch to say our healthcare system needs to be part of this because that's where the treatment is. Um, but it's been a little bit longer to get workplaces convinced that they're also part of this. Um, and I would say, you know, we were advocating for this from 2005 to 2012, and it was crickets for the most part. Most people didn't buy into this argument that workplaces could be contributors to prevention in this area. But ever since we started going industry by industry, um, it's been far more. So we've been doing work in fire service and law enforcement and uh, EMS and construction and so forth, and, and it's gone much better. And I think the other piece is um, workplaces have found that physical wellness impacts productivity. So more forward-leaning, progressive workplaces are doing things like wellness incentives for benefits. And they are trying to encourage people to quit smoking and manage their weight and exercise and watch their nutrition, um, but they've not yet fully introduced mental wellness. And so that's also mm-hmm. been part of our conversation is how do we get upstream from this crisis of suicide and really promote workplaces as caring communities that are promoting mental well-being as well as physical well-being. Um, that's also really exciting to see. And you'll see all of the large tech companies out of Silicon Valley, they've gotten this a long time ago. And they realize if they're going to attract and keep uh, young talent, that those uh, really valuable professionals want to feel like their whole person is being cared for. Um, and so industries that are dying and are not able to attract young talent need to get up to speed with what the tech companies are doing because they're grabbing all the best and brightest. Um, so that's, that's even more exciting to me because if we can prevent people from experiencing this level of despair or just having much shorter experiences with it because they're surrounded by peer support and professional support, um, Everybody's going to be better off, and workplaces are going to benefit from more engaged, more loyal, more productive employees. Well, well Sally, don't you don't you also feel that as a society we we have a way of measuring success as our work? Work equals success. You know, if you climbed up the ladder to a, a manager's position or executive position, um, success is based on work. At least that's how we are perceiving it. Don't you think we need to sort of change the conversation into what's the best balance between work and living your life? Yes, absolutely. And I do feel like this emerging generation of workers gets that very clearly. They have seen their parents and the older generations be so miserable of working, working, working themselves to the bone, and then really at the end of the day, they don't have a lot to show for it. They may have a lot of shiny, sparkly things, but they've ruined their relationships and they've ruined their health in the process. And the younger emerging workers, they do not want that. They're like, life is too short. I want to do something I'm interested. And if it has, you know, an impact on the, on, on the greater world that's positive, I'm all about it. And I want to make a decent living. I don't want to be poor, but I want to live my life. I want to have experiences. I want to travel. I want to have friends. I want to do things that take care of my health. And so this is why in, the, in this emerging generation of workers, we're seeing a lot of job hopping because if they do not feel like that's an opportunity for them, they're not worried about leaving. 
you know, they're, they don't need to like, you know, grind it out and sacrifice themselves uh, for a thankless employer. Um, so again, if employers really want to capture this group of, of talent, works for everybody, they've got to change their mindset. And a lot of people in midlife, this is why we have these deaths of despair, they're waking up to this, right? So, oh my gosh, I'm 50. What do I have to show? Uh, you know, I'm on my second divorce. My kids won't talk to me. Um, it's a very uh, discouraging time for people, but it's not too late. It's not too late to kind of redefine what you want in your life and to maybe let go of some of those old ways of defining success and really start to define success around engagement, life engagement, happiness, um, and fulfillment in who you are as a person. And I know that sounds all fluffy, but it, really in the end of the no, day, but you it's true. Of, you and it's not about money earning money. Yeah. Well, it's maybe we all need to money. be a little fluffier. <laughs> if we're fluffy, maybe we're we happier. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it's not about how much money you make. I mean, believe me, look at the kinds of things that that we're doing online here. I don't make a penny out of any of this stuff, and yep. this is my passion work. So maybe you're talking right. about that, too. You need to have passion work, right? Yeah, if not in your job, at least cultivate yes. something on the side, in your faith community, volunteering that you do, right. um, mentoring, teaching, anything that you feel like you've got gifts and talents that you can share and help make somebody else's life better, find that little niche in yourself. It will feed your soul and make time for it as a priority, not as yeah. like, oh, I'll get to that thing eventually. Because it might, you know, you might never get to that thing eventually. You might never get you know. to it. Your body falls apart yeah. like some of us. <laughs> right, but right, anyway, right. Uh, is there, is there a, a, what's the dollar cost in terms of the industries that are taking this on? Is it it's very big or is it just a matter of sort of rearranging your resources or, or reorganizing what you do? So there's, of course, variable costs uh, across the board on this. Um, most workplaces uh, that are of moderate and large size do have um, an employee assistance program, EAP. Right. And right. these programs right, tend to offer um, free or very low-cost mental health services or addiction support services or crisis services, but they're not all created equal. And so one of the things I counsel workplaces on, because the leaders check the box in their head, like I've got this covered for my people because I have an EAP, but they really yeah. need to vet. They need to vet that EAP to make sure that the services that their employees are getting are quality services that are easily accessible. And so they need to be asking questions about who the providers are and what's the process that employees need to go through to get enrolled and how much training have the uh, providers had and what's the confidentiality and all of these, these really important questions. So that's one piece. And those are usually charged on a per employee basis. Um, and you kind of pay for what you get. So, uh, the uh, International EPA organization is a great place where people can go to to get more information about how to vet these different EAP products that employers can buy. Um, a lot of the other stuff um, is really about changing mindset. And so there's really not a cost to that. Um, it really is about leaders embracing this as a priority and not as a foofy add-on. Um, but as something that is really at the heart of the value of their company and making it um, a high priority to make sure that employees' well-being is attended to and having messages out from leadership about why this is important and what they need to do to make it better, kind of an iterative quality um, improvement process to make sure that employees are getting the types of mental health support that they need for themselves and their families. And again, that, that will increase loyalty, it will increase engagement, and it will increase productivity if that's done well. Um, well and so that communication strategy is really important. And I'll just finish up with the, with the last okay. few. The, the, the third one is training. Um, we don't know what we don't know. And, and suicide in particular is a very daunting topic for people. Um, so we tend to avoid things we're scared about and we feel reluctant or uncertain about opening conversations about mental health and, and suicide in particular. So there are a number of trainings out there that can, in a very short period of time, help employees of all levels of the company, not just the managers, um, open up a conversation about these daunting topics and be knowledgeable and competent referral sources to things that can help them in their community or online. 
And then the following, final thing that employers can look at are their policies. What are their policies around mental health um, uh, reintegration, for example, if somebody needs to take a medical leave for depression, um, how do we reintegrate that employee? What, what do we do when we're responding to a suicide death? Um, most employers never think that this is going to happen, and then when it happens, they're unprepared. So those are some of the different things, and the costs to them are, are relatively small compared to the benefit of having mentally resilient and, and, and a vibrant, fully engaged workforce. Go ahead. What was well, your question? I, I, I think this is great. I, but I, working as a full-time person with, within state government, and you're very entrenched in bureaucracy, and they outsource to EAP, to a, to a, you know, a contract company, and knowing how deeply in debt a lot of our state governments are, and small nonprofits too. I mean, it's very important for that. What would be your your answer for that in this in 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 our struggling economy? I, I think this is so good, and I would totally invite you to come to you know our state and and do a presentation on this if possible. But how do we address that if we're in a system that's so bureaucratic and entrenched? To have them uh, say, hey, this is a good thing. So um, I'm pretty <laughs> sure most states have internal EAPs. I might be wrong about that, but I know Colorado does, and it's you know a, a hardworking, mm-hmm. uh, forward-leading group that's very connected to the state HR manage, uh, managers and supervisors and so and directors. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you're right; large bureaucracy, the VA, like state government, um, tends right. to move slow, slowly. So um, and the you know the process of getting getting connected and getting things changed is very tedious and cumbersome. So I would advocate any leaders within those agencies to become um, knowledgeable of resources in their community. Um, so not necessarily, you know, totally depend on the internal system, which may or may not be responsive, but become knowledgeable of resources in their community that they could also engage with. Um, so mm-hmm. generally speaking, most most communities have community mental health centers that have a variety of services and training that they offer. Um, there are various peer-related groups. Um, obviously, all of the 12-step groups, AA, NA, um, are, are everywhere and great resources for people. But there's also different mental health peer groups, you know, depression support, even suicide attempt survivor support groups that are emerging. Um, so knowing what knowing a variety of options that people can engage in, like a buffet, um, can really yeah. help people not feel so stuck in the bureaucracy piece, um, and uh, and to really create that community of care beyond the workplace, so that people on a first name basis can say, oh yeah, I know the crisis center, um, they're based here in Denver, um, they're fantastic. It's Colorado Crisis Services. Um, Bev Marquez is the CEO. She's an amazing human. Like really. Um, power and give people confidence that when they reach out to these different services that they're going to get good care. So our leadership really has to familiarize ourselves with how to do that um, by, by doing our homework and reaching out and learning. Right. Well, I, I, think, that's, I, I think that's a good answer. I mean, sometimes I get so frustrated because of the, the industry that I operate in and thinking, oh, this is innovative, but kind of a square peg in a round hole, but that can't let us stop us from, from trying to make those changes, and, and you're right. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I just wanted to mention, too, that we did have an entity that's sort of related to this, and Delilah, I think you will remember, from um, the Carolinas, we had the the South Carolina Firefighters Association um, that has a, and I forget what the accurate, the FAST, they have a peer counseling group there that that deals with um with um emergency uh preparedness people who have been going through uh grief and loss and they they have a peer counseling kind of a group that is set up for this but it might be good to connect with them or i can help you connect with them with regard to your piece i was just thinking that because they absolutely great they're a great organization, and I can talk to you off there about that, but I think that's another positive thing, and they definitely are, you know, within this realm that you're talking about, you know. So if you remember um, but, uh, from, 
the beginning of my story when I said what was the piece that was missing for Carson and it was a peer. I do see this as the future of where we're headed in mental health promotion and suicide prevention because for especially many men in the middle years, the jump yeah. between I've got I've got this on my own and I can figure it out to oh my gosh, I gotta go to see a a, a shrink. I gotta go see a mental health service professional and maybe go into a hospital. That that jump is too big. Um, and so we have to have an interim step. And, and so we're seeing this in first responder communities, like you mentioned. Um, and I love my, my folks at the Denver Fire Department. Um, they are so forward-leaning around this cultivating, um, and the Denver Police Department, too. I mean, they are state-of-the-art peer support that is such a model for the nation. Um, and that wow. could be the interim step when we um, develop. Oh, and also I should give a shout-out to the SMART Union, Sheet Metal Air Rig. Transportation Union. These are my construction guys again, that really have have realized that people are far more likely to go to a peer than they are to a professional as a first step. And so, if we can give um, companies a roadmap on how to develop formalized peer support that are trained, supervised, you know, nominated, selected, groomed to do the best job possible to be there with their peers and also know when a referral to professional help services is warranted and how to effectively link people to those pathways. That's where I see the future headed in the workplace, and it's super exciting because then fewer, fewer people will be falling through the cracks. And are, are you linking to a lot of other, like, uh, um, marriage and family counseling people, MSWs and all of that? I know of a couple people now that are listening to this show in that profession and probably thinking, oh, this is really, this is really a wonderful resource, and I'm, I'm hoping that they're part of that conversation too, right? Absolutely. Um, various forms of mental health services all play a role in healing and recovery. Um, and, again, I feel like my, my, my advocacy around that part of the conversation is to make sure that all of them, marriage and family, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, addiction and recovery counselors that everybody is constantly sharpening their skills around state-of-the-art suicide risk management assessment recovery tools um, because most of us got some small piece of this in graduate school somewhere along the line but it was usually mm-hmm. embedded in some other large course and it was 15 years ago and it was largely focused on don't get sued um, and so there's so much more <laughs> so much more yeah. that, that's collaborative empowering uh, and dignified we can do a much better job yeah um i'm just bowled over by the you know the empowerment aspect of this if we can all connect is this per se i mean does each person have to enroll or is this available to the public to look at if if somebody feels that they're listening right now i'm a guy or i'm a girlfriend of a guy who's at risk and and can you give us some resource information i mean it's just to direct I don't know if, if you want to steer people to certain uh, resources or if they wanted to look at the screening. Is that available, Sally? Absolutely. So uh, I'll start with my website, sallyspencerthomas.com. sallyspencerthomas.com. There'll be emerging resources coming there. I'll be hosting podcasts and webinars and so forth, and I'll have a newsletter you could sign up for about hot topics in suicide prevention, mental health promotion, and so forth. Um, probably the most impactful, least cost resource that I can promote is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-TALK, which is 8255, 1-800-273-8255. It is free, 24-7. It's operated by local crisis centers around the country that are are accredited with state-of-the-art training in suicide de-escalation. Um, it's an amazing resource that is very, very focused on empowerment and dignity and collaborative problem-solving, um, and anybody can call it anytime. People who are wary, people who are living through it, et cetera. Now, Man Therapy is just is an, it, mantherapy.org is a publicly accessible website. Everybody can reach it. Um, we are licensed in eight states, which means, and the country of Australia, I'm proud to say, uh, which means that the mm-hmm. eight states, get additional technical assistance to roll it out locally so that it really feels like it's a Michigan man therapy campaign. It's a Massachusetts man therapy campaign, um, and it's far more likely to get uh, local buy-in. Our numbers just explode when we have these state resources. Um, so anybody can go anytime um, and, uh, and have, a, have a session, if you will, with uh, Dr. Rich Mahogany. Is it time to wow. queue up the last, uh, the last PSA? 
would would we like to do that? Well, well, I hope that we can have you on in the future because I think you're just a a wonderful resource and and I've learned so much. How about what do you say, Delilah? Oh, absolutely. I think you're you know you're doing a great work out there that it's an area that needs it so so badly. Um, yeah, and, we appreciate and I'd what like you're to help doing. in the future. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'd love to be back on. Okay, great. We'll 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 make it happen. But in the meantime, we'll we'll do this we'll do this last spot and and cool. for now we'll close out today's edition of Shattered Lives Radio and we'll be in touch. Okay, Sally. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. Sometimes men feel angry or overwhelmed. So at mantherapy.org, men can deal with life's issues using tools like aromantherapy. Dim the lights. Make yourself comfortable and heat up some essential oils like the ones that emanate from a skillet of sizzling bacon. Now, take a deep breath. Mantherapy.org. Therapy the way a man does it. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.